Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Hollywood Remixed, a Hollywood Reporter podcast about cultural shifts in entertainment. I'm Rebecca Sun, senior reporter. And I'm Rebecca Ford, awards editor. Each episode, we'll take a deep dive into a single topic, a type of story or character that has been traditionally underrepresented or misrepresented in pop culture. Today's topic is inspired by the film Hustlers. Later on in the episode, we'll have the writer-director Lorene Scafaria join us to talk about her film. But before we do that, we'll explore how Hollywood has portrayed sex workers in film and television. We're going to stick to talking specifically about exotic dancers in film and TV because there are so many films about sex workers. So we won't be talking about prostitution. So we won't be talking about Pretty Woman. We won't be talking about porn. We won't bring up Boogie Nights. But we're really going to focus on the female exotic dancer films, which also means no magic mic Mm -hmm. in this discussion. That'll be a future podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So we, we definitely can't cover everything, but I think we should just... Really make sure we talk about the tropes that have been a part of the quote-unquote stripper film over the years. Yeah, I mean, it's basically like a rite of passage for every, like, ingenue actress. I mean, honestly, if you, I think if you go back through most of the female movie stars you can think of, at least half of them have played a stripper uh, or exotic dancer in some way. There was a, uh, weirdly, a cafe mom <laughs> Block. I'll just sure. shut it out. Where I just Googled, there's 20 super hot actresses who have played strippers in movies. And it's like everybody. It's obviously Lindsay Lohan, but it's also like Kristen Stewart, Halle Berry, Jennifer Aniston played a stripper in We're the Millers, mm-hmm. um, Jessica Alba, Sin City, Marisa Tomei, um, Salma Hayek mm-hmm. from Dust Till Dawn, Natalie Portman. Like, you know, we've got award winners there. So it's a trope. Yeah. So let's look at sort of the movies that have been purely about strippers. I think one of the earliest ones I can think of is called The Stripper Mm -hmm. from 1963. I actually rewatched this before we recorded this podcast. It's uh, Joanne Woodward as this struggling actress who basically gets talked into stripping by the end of the movie because she's just run out of options and money. And her costume is these balloons that are popped on stage. And like when she is doing this stripping routine, it is sad. Like the guy who was in love with her decides he's not in love with her anymore after seeing her sort of expose herself in this way. And it's just this sort of really like tragic take on stripping and why any woman would sort of get tricked into doing it by the end of a movie. Yeah, I mean that it definitely brings up some tropes you'll see pop up um, as as pop we pop up was that a pun pop up? Oh balloon? my gosh, pun yeah. unintended! Yeah. As as we sort of go through this journey, so that was 1963. Twenty years later, there was Flashdance, which you know we have to sort of. I mean, Jennifer Beals, her iconic character, steelworker by day, exotic dancer by night, professional ballerina in her dreams mm-hmm. <laughs> should have mm-hmm. been the tagline. Yeah, I mean, so she doesn't take off her clothes in the movie, but certainly there's that iconic 
dance where she pours the, you know, she pulls the chain and the water goes over her. And um, Flashdance is interesting. There are, there's a little bit of the trope because there's, you know, the guy who owns the steel mill ends up falling in love with her mm-hmm. and encourages her to live her dreams. But in general, I think that her dancing at uh, this nightclub isn't really seen as necessarily a degrading thing. It's just sort of not not the not the major leagues that that she wants to be in. There is a subplot where she has a friend who has that more conventional like you know aspiring figure skater ends up you know get has a bad boyfriend who makes her start doing new dancing and then like Jennifer Beale's character is the one who kind of like rescues her from that. So mm-hmm. there's still a little bit of that in that movie. The theme I, I feel like I always see here is like they want to be doing something else, but they couldn't. They wanted to be an actress. They wanted to be a uh, dancer, but they couldn't. So they were a stripper instead, you know? And so I think we'll just see that over and over again. Mm-hmm. But we definitely can't do this segment without talking about showgirls, of course. You know, Elizabeth Berkeley's very memorable film, the first NC-17 rated film to receive a wide release, but it obviously bombed in theaters, but then sort of went on to become a cult hit, I guess is what I would call it, you know, and did really well in DVD rentals. I wonder why. <laughs> because You can watch it at home. Yeah. And, you know, it's all about sort of rivalry and betrayal and competition between these women and lots lots of nudity lots of sex obviously a, a, a Paul Verhoeven is the director and is a man and you know I think we're, we're going to talk a lot about sort of seeing things through the male gaze in a lot of these films but uh, that's that's a big one in the in the stripper genre I guess yeah yeah exactly um, the mid 90s were like really big for stripper movies because yep. following showgirls in 95 the next year 1996 saw striptease mm-hmm. which was you know Demi Moore and basically the log line is she's a former FBI st- secretary who turns to stripping in order to pay for legal appeal to regain custody of her daughter so again once again a, a woman who was a professional and for whatever reason, Uh, has to become a stripper because um, she's a mom and she just wants her daughter back. Right. So, yeah. yeah. That that film was actually, I think the director spoke about how because Showgirls was such an epic flop, it actually hurt striptease from doing better. I think he thought that was sort of one of the reasons it didn't work, but it also was critically panned and Demi Moore had to deal with a lot of flack because she was paid like $12.5 at the time, which made her the highest paid actress and everyone was just you know, shocked, even though, you know, male actors were making much more than that at the time, but she had to sort of defend herself um, at the same time as sort of being a part of this film that just did not do well. So it was not a great time for her in her career either. It definitely, it was sort of like, those were a couple of things that kind of knocked her off of that you know, sort of a position yeah. for, for female movie stars. Um, you know, those are the main highlights of, of um, what we think of when we think quote unquote stripper movies. Of course, I just want to quickly just name check a, a few other titles. Um, you know, stripper movies are intersectional. 1998, so again, mid-90s, Ice Cube's first movie that he directed was The Players Club, which was, uh, yet again, Lisa Ray is, is about a college student who turns to stripping in order to pay for tuition. You know, this movie starred Bernie Mac, Jamie Foxx. It was, um, you know, just the intersection of race and strippers. There was Very Bad Things, Peter Berg, you know, your classic, you know, it's the unfortunate, quote unquote, dead stripper at a bachelor party trope where hijinks ensue. And it's it's the premise for a comedy film. We actually saw that gender flipped with Rough Night um, with Scarlett Mm -hmm. Johansson last year. 
closer. Natalie Portman plays a mysterious woman who uh, has a memorable encounter with Clive Owen at a strip club. And then Burlesque, which Burlesque, you know... Not, a, I don't think there's a ton of nudity there's in it. There's not, but... no, there's not. But there's dancing for the pleasure of men and lots of singing. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> so a, we're gonna you know, include and, it. On and this. yeah, it's, again, and that one falls into the whole like you know, ingenue, right? You know, it's an all about Eve. You know, you become the star type of thing. So it's kind of like Showgirls, but not NC seventeen. So what's interesting about the group of films we've sort of highlighted right now is they were all directed by men. So I'm really excited that we're about to talk to Lorreen Scafaria here, who wrote and directed Hustlers, which is just such an empowering film and such a new, it feels like such a new take on portraying the lives of exotic dancers. And I can't wait to really get into it with how she pulled this off. Yeah, exactly. It's a little remarkable that it took, I mean, from the movie The Stripper mm-hmm. in the 60s, I mean, it took basically like 50-something years for a woman to actually direct a major film that is set, it, that is basically about a female-dominated workplace. Yep. You know, other tropes that Ford mentioned are there always has to be some sort of justification for why these women turn to this line of work, kind of a sob story that, you know, sort of automatically presumes that um, stripping is something that you should be ashamed of or that you would never choose to do as a first option. Yeah, I love that it's a a lot of these films have men that kind of trick the women into stripping. Like they bring them to the strip club or they talk them into it at the last minute, which is just such an interesting way to tell that story I guess is like they just had no choice and they had to do it and then and then they sort of become disillusioned or like you know reject the women once they see them at work so it's again it's that virgin whore dichotomy you know at work and then and then finally I think that the uh, the rivalry aspect of it um, certainly I mean Showgirls was basically pitched as it's it's all about Eve mm-hmm. set in a Vegas review and so it's totally about competition between women but it's and this is something we'll talk about talk with Lorene about later but the competition is over male favor and male attention mm-hmm. the last thing I want to say is you know when we talk about the stripper the stripping scenes themselves again we will. Do a deep dive with Loreen about the instant iconic J-Lo scene in Hustlers. But when I went back and watched, you know, clips of, you know, like Demi Moore's striptease or, um, you know, those showgirl scenes, it's really interesting how they're, they're shot differently. And one thing that really stuck out to me in the Demi Moore um, in striptease was there's a lot of focus on the the men's faces. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like the camera cuts a lot to the dudes and even though you could argue that she's controlling their reaction, you know, the audience avatar is definitely leering. I mean, you're basically like you're drooling along with them. And, and that's something that is kind of absent in Hustlers, as we'll see soon. So I'm ready to talk to Loreen. Like, I can't wait to pick her brain about how she did this, how she pulled off and really making this empowered film. So I think we should get to it. Let's do it. So for today's episode, we'd love to welcome Laureen Scafaria. She was the writer of Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, the writer and director of Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, and the writer and director of The Meddler. Um, But today we are talking about her latest film, The Wonderful Hustlers, which she also wrote and directed. The film came out September 13th. It stars Constance Wu and Jennifer Lopez. And it has since become a huge box office hit and a movie that people just cannot Stop talking about. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
So, um, Lorene, we were going to start with, you know, when it comes to the way that sex workers or, you know, exotic dancers have traditionally been portrayed in movies, how would you sort of characterize um, what you saw when you were sort of doing your research in preparation for this film? Um, I watched, uh, you know, a lot of narrative features and, and some TV shows and documentaries. So it was quite a, a lot of research, but it, it, it did feel like, at least for the, in, in the features and the narrative work, at least the way in which the movies were shot, if not told, were not with agency and not with uh, giving the, the dancers that, that power and control. And I wanted to give them that. I wanted to tell the story from their perspective, but also obviously use that theme of control in terms of the visual storytelling of it. But yeah, really walk in their shoes. It, it, it feels like we've seen a scene in a strip club in every single movie and TV show ever, and so few have been told from the dancer's perspective. So it, it started there. It started with wanting to see them differently and really see it through their own eyes. And so I felt like what I had seen previously was was not that it was really um it felt like you were one of the uh, guys in the crowd really watching a movie about them and so we started there my dp and i wanted to we thought a lot about sports movies to be honest and so we we watched that uh, those kinds of films i would say even even more so in terms of how we were going to see the dancers so um yeah really wanted to highlight the athleticism of it and the power and the strength of it and treat it a little more like a sports movie in that way. I, I had written into the script things like the dancers are walking down that hallway and onto the floor like football players leaving the tunnel. It was, you know, a little bit of a different lens, I would say, than, than what I had seen previously. That's so interesting. What sports movies specifically did you end up? Oh, I mean, a lot of boxing films i mean you know creed and and rocky and that was really the inspiration for ramona for jennifer lopez's character walking onto the stage like a like a fighter entering the ring that was a little bit of raging bull our our first shot of of her so yeah a lot of boxing movies a lot of fighter movies the wrestler being a great one um same director black swan you know uh, was another one to watch and yeah, I mean, it, 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 there are such beautifully told stories like that. Even I, Tanya, let's say, was, was like a great example of a of a sports movie that really did obviously focus on the character. My research to write it was different than that. And, and that was a lot more of that was meeting people and going into clubs and talking to dancers about their experiences. And before the crash, after the crash, certainly in New York City and Wall Street's backyard. But I felt like I had seen a lot of films <laughs> up until this point with stripper characters, um, sex worker characters. Um, and, and, you know, there are some good ones, I, I think, in the, in the mix. I mean, it seems like we're a lot more comfortable with male escort stories in a way. That's kind of interesting to just think of how Midnight Cowboy and My Own Private Idaho are movies that people seem to be more interested in, right. frankly. Yeah. Good point. Never thought about that. Yeah. When you were first approached to do the adaptation of Jessica Pressler's article, I mean, you kind of mentioned that your research was different, but also, you know, just in terms of taking a look at that article and, and turning it into a screenplay, what did you feel like the story actually was about, you know, who these characters were? Because 
I think we, with that article, you could interpret it in a variety of ways. I guess I looked at it and I thought it was about loneliness and the cure for loneliness, which is often sisterhood and, and friendship, obviously. But for me, that was what I took from it. I, I certainly was looking at that woman as a character and and what she was getting from it. I, I mean, we certainly strayed from the real story and the real people. I didn't have access to them ahead of time like I wish I had. Um, so I was really using the article and kind of reading between the lines. So for me, it was about control, really. It was about a woman who has had moments in her life where she's felt out of control and that she's trying to, you know, get in control of herself, of her body, of her situation, and, of course, her financial status in life. And so when she sees Ramona, Jennifer Lopez's character, for the first time, she sees how in control this person is. And she has a completely different relationship with her body and with her job. And so she wants that. She wants that for herself. And so for me, that was the theme that was kind of running throughout the movie. But it was about so many things. It was about gender as it relates to the economy. It was about women under capitalism. It was about that power dynamic, our, our broken value system, and how men are valued for money and success and power, and women are valued for beauty and their bodies, whether that's for sex or motherhood. And so I was really just taking that, the, the rules of the club being the rules of the world. And I found it incredibly relatable. I've danced for the money in that way. I've, I've, I mean, you know, we're dancing right now. It's all just a, a dance. And so I, I found what they go through incredibly relatable. I mean, if, if anyone's ever not had money in their lives, I think they could also understand, you know, what that's like. But it was also a period piece, which I found really interesting. I mean, a very recent <laughs> period piece, but still a period piece. And uh, I thought, you know, what better way to speak to what's happening right now than to look right over our shoulders and, and realize how how different things were so recently, but also that there really was this, this hinge, you know, um, there really was this turning point for people. Arguably, 9-11 might have been that first turning point. The year 2000 felt like this, this time when third wave feminism and Howard Stern were colliding, like, like Jessica's article says. And, and, and I felt that. I mean, I was a teenager and a kid of the 90s. You know, that's when I went to high school and, and college. And so that was the era that I knew. And I remember what it was like. And I had friends who danced at, at clubs and friends who were paying off student loans. And it all seemed very, you know, normal. And in a way it is. I mean, it, it, it it's certainly a job like anything else. And that was what was so interesting to me once I was doing the the research of it. But Jessica's article really did highlight so many themes I was excited to talk about in a really organic way. It, it, it's a story that could only be about women. You know, that was mm -hmm. that was what was exciting to me. It wasn't manufactured. It was it was a story about women and the female experience and maybe one that feels very different to a lot of people, but hopefully relatable. So tell me a little bit more about this research you did speaking to actual exotic dancers. What, how accessible were they to you? Did they want to share their stories? And what did you sort of learn that surprised you from talking to them? Oh, yeah. I mean, they were completely open. I certainly would never have pried yeah. <laughs> if they didn't want to talk to me. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, usually I'd go in, talk to the managers, talk to the house moms, talk to the dancers who, um, some who had been there before the crash. And a lot of them had 
changed once that happened. They they didn't they couldn't keep up with how different things were because money changed mm-hmm. and what someone was willing to do for $20 changed, what someone expected for $20 changed. And so the women that I spoke to, a lot of them became bartenders or house moms or management and and others, you know, continued and found ways to thrive and others were brand new and 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 um, I met incredibly happy women who found incredible freedom in the job and one woman who would work for a month and and save up the money to then take her band on the road for a month and so you know you have all different kinds of people different stages of their lives and different needs and different relationships with the job and and of course different clubs are you know they have uh, some are better run mm-hmm. than others and some have nicer management than others but you know they don't have job security these women and and um they're not technically employees of the club. And so that's, that is hard. And they're, you know, they have to pay house fees, and they have to tip out everybody. So it was just learning how it, you know, the operation runs and, and, and really they're different experiences. And, and I mean, every, we all have different experiences, obviously. And so I think how they came to the job, what, what kind of money were they pulling in? I mean, that obviously had a big effect. That's the truth. I mean, the difference between a a good night and a bad night is how much you go home with. It's not, did my favorite client come in or, you know, did I have an interaction with a nice guy or a bad guy? And so it's really, what did I go home with? Can I pay the bills with this? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. you were hired to write the screenplay and, and in interviews, you and the producers have talked about how initially they envisioned like going to Scorsese mm-hmm. for this to direct um, or then even maybe Adam McKay, who had um, who was a producer on the film. You know, I'm thinking about so many things because I think Jessica Elbaum, one of the producers, said that was just because they were imagining, well, who are the people who've made these types of films before? And it becomes Mm. a catch-22 for female filmmakers because you don't get enough opportunities to begin with. So how do you amass a resume that Mm -hmm. resembles the film you're trying to get? What was your pitch and how did you sort of... How were you able to basically convince the producers that, look, I should direct my own screenplay? I mean, it took a long time. It was a <laughs> nine-month process between me handing in the script and and then getting the meeting to um, just, you know, put myself forward for it. So those nine months, I had my hand in the air, of course. And it's like you said, I knew I had to write my way into the director's chair. So for me, that was why I took the job, even though I knew it was just a writing assignment and it wasn't mine to direct. I thought the only way I'm going to get to do this is to prove myself on the page. So I wrote a ton of the music uh, cues, all the song choices, all the Chopin pieces were written into the script. Certainly some visual language just to try to, you know, say this is (laughs) I have a vision for this. And then, yeah, I mean, when they said Scorsese, I was excited, frankly. I mean, you know, I'm a Jersey Italian, so I was just very, um, you know, we're the same height. And um, I I was just excited to to even have him read it. I'm sure he didn't. But um, and that was a thrill. And I am a fan of McKay's also. I I think he's great. So I, I wasn't sure if that was if it was going to be something that he was going to push for. But he had his Cheney movie and Scorsese passed. <laughs> but McKay knew that I wanted to direct it at that point. And he was incredibly supportive of it, to be honest. It was, I was saying I was rooting for Scorsese and he said, I, I hope Scorsese passes. So 
I did feel supported, honestly, by the producers of the film. At that point, we were at a different studio, and I don't think the studio was as excited about me directing it. So they sent it to everyone in town. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They sent it to a friend of mine who sent an angry letter back, which was really very adorable (laughs) of her. Um, And... Yeah, and I'm, I guess I'm just grateful that whatever meetings they might have taken during that time, you know, it wasn't a home run or it wasn't an exact fit. And I felt that way, and I just asked for that meeting. And all that time I was editing footage of strippers and strip teases to Chopin. I was editing different sequences that I had written, that dream sequence, different things that just as a proof of concept, really. And then my editor, Kayla Emter, um, she edited The Meddler also. I mean, and again, I should say, like, I understand it wasn't an easy leap, like you said, that, you know, from the director of The Meddler comes Hustlers. But, <laughs> um, and same thing with Kayla from the editor of, of The Meddler. So she and I worked on this sizzle reel, just like a two-minute sort of mini trailer of the movie using different footage from other movies and music videos. And it was it was so funny because for me it was like, there's a market for this. Look, you can look at all these, you know, nine to five and first wives club and bridesmaids and all these movies and mean girls. And, and what's the difference? What's the difference between that group of girls and this group of girls hanging out, you know, in the locker room. And, and so, um, there was also a hole in the marketplace because I, there was so little footage of women earning money and women handling money. And that kind of blew my mind, actually, how how little of that we could find or how little footage of strippers at work that didn't that felt like the movie we were trying to make. There was so little of that. So I presented this sizzle reel, you know, along with my pitch of why this was an event movie. You know, I think when you see something very clearly, when you have a specific vision for it, it's almost harder to convince people. You know, I think it took that sizzle reel. I think it took that to green light the movie, frankly, and get the job and, and all that. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a long process. And, and then once I got the job, of course, it went through its own ups and downs and casting and the, we lost a home. We went around town with it and we found a home and it felt like people were judging the characters, not for where they ended up, but for where they started from. Mm -hmm. So that's what was really hard for me. I was taking that very personally because it wasn't like, oh, this crime drama, which I, I assumed right. people would, you know, female characters need to be likable, that kind of thing. I, I assumed as much. But to realize that they were being judged for, for where they started from, was that was hard. That was really hard. It must feel so good that you were so right that it's an event film. <laughs> like, I'm so glad that they listened to your pitch and you yeah, got to make well, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I mean about a vision. Sometimes there's a fine line yeah. between a movie for no one and a movie for everyone. Right. And so it was... It took a minute to explain right. that this this could be for a wider audience than they were thinking. It is interesting because when, when he looked back at sort of the pivotal movies about exotic dancers, they were all directed by men. Mm. Every single one we kind of looked yeah, we, at. Yeah, we went through like the history. Yeah. So I am curious, do you feel like there is a difference in the way a woman directs this movie versus how a man might have? I mean, I assume so, just based on... Yeah, all, everything that we have to look at, I assume so. I don't know. I mean, I, I'd like to think I brought more to that individually than, than just my femaleness. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I certainly think we were, we were so conscious of, of how we were 
covering it. But I I think part of it was to say, like, look, we can still shoot this scene, this Ramona's dance, and it's going to be sexy as hell. And and but the sexiness is coming from how in control she is and and where the camera goes is because of Ramona, because that's where Ramona wants it. And when we cut, that's also Ramona. And when we what we're showing is really what she wants us to see. And we're being hustled. The, we are the audience being hustled by her as as much as the crowd is. And so, um, you know, for for me, that was the joy of it was we can just tell this story and and know what perspective we're telling it from. Yes, it's Destiny's point of view. It's Destiny seeing Ramona. It's Destiny having this like awestruck moment. But we're also a part of it. You know, we're also complicit and a part of it. And um, so, yeah, I mean, we just we were highly aware of how we were covering it. But to be honest, it didn't require, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't like a, there wasn't a step in front of that. Yeah. It was like just obvious. And so, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think one of the things, even, you know, as you're speaking about how you approach the film and the story, it, it occurs to me that there's some similarities with how, for example, and this is not exactly the same thing, but how men and women talk about sexual crimes and things Mm. like that. A lot of times for men, the understanding is it's about sex. Um, Like recently, I think Bob Woodward did this talk with Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey, and he kept saying like, it was about sex, right? And they kept saying, no, it's about power. It's about power. And so I do think that there are some things that I think women sort of, you know, I think things where you have a movie where the characters work at a strip club, um, there might be a tendency for guys to be blinded or distracted by the sex aspect and miss Mm. the fact that it's a film about the economy or it's a film about crime or power or control or friendship, you know, or sisterhood, as as it was with Hustlers. Um, I'm curious about how, you know you know, your your editors, female, you have producers who are female. We didn't do a deep dive onto all those, you know, the Hollywood's canon of quote unquote stripper movies to see how much of the crew of those films was female. I would imagine not a ton. Probably not a lot. <laughs> not yeah. a ton. I mean just yeah. How assuming. do you think how do you think that affected sort of just the the process or even just sort of the, the, the tone on set and that sort of thing? I mean, the vibe on set was incredible. We, I, I mean, I credit the AD department, you know, for that. I mean, to be honest, it was such a balanced mix of people. I think when you have women in power positions, that changes the tone on set. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the kinds of men who are willing to work for women might be different. So that changed everything. And obviously, I'm running around making sure everybody feels comfortable and safe and hired a, a comfort consultant who was also our, our um, stripper consultant who played Jackie in the movie. Her mm-hmm. name's Jacqueline Francis. She goes by Jack the Stripper online. But so she was she was a part of that, a part of the making sure that everybody felt good, but also reminding the girls that they're in control. And of course, we had 300 background, 250 men, 50 women working there. And and most of them are dancers in, in, in real life. And so they all brought a certain authenticity to it. It was just a really lovely, very hardworking New York crew. And we, we shot the whole movie in 29 days. So there wasn't any time for BS, really. <laughs> it was, um, it, you know, we had to get it every day. And we were in the club maybe four days um, Champagne room, private area, maybe two more days. So it was, it was not a lot of time. Total, to get, total. Wow. Yeah, it was not a lot of time to get that 
environment, right? And, you know, we want everybody to feel good and, and comfortable to do their work, but we also need to capture this really rowdy masculine environment. And so it was just a balance. And, and I really credit the AD department. Um, you know, our first AD was a man. Our second was a woman. Our second second was a woman who had just given birth, I think, two weeks <laughs> before that and was pumping <laughs> in between setups. So it was really it was really like a lovely, lovely group. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it it was different, obviously, I think, to have women in positions of power. But was just a thoughtful, really respectful group of people who knew we were what we were there to to do. And and the dancers, the background girls, they were so comfortable with themselves. I mean, we'd constantly remind them to put their robes back on because <laughs> they felt very comfortable with themselves. So but it was, yeah, an incredibly professional place. And you mentioned this a little bit already, but I am personally obsessed with Jennifer Lopez's grand entrance dance scene. It's like an instant class. <laughs> like my jaw just dropped watching her. But I am curious for you, you know, how did you, I mean, she's obviously a natural performer, but how do you get, kind of help her get to the place to do that? And what was sort of on your inspiration board for that scene? You know, it's wild that that was written in the script. I wrote uh, Ramona does one final flourish <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then Destiny watches her walk across the room yeah. and, and reap the benefits of her performance but it wasn't until Jennifer was on board and obviously she's so determined and so driven and was committed to throwing herself into this and really wanted to train and do the work so so she thankfully stepped that scene out and we were able to give that character a real entrance and and really see her in her element my dp and i didn't see that until 2 weeks before we filmed it and like you, we had to take our jaws off the ground and then <laughs> talk about, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to cover this? So um, we wanted to treat it like the stunt that it was. And it, I mean, it, it takes so much work to do that if you're not, you know, if you haven't been trained at, at pole forever. And I know she trained for months and was bruised all over. So we didn't want to have her do it too many times, obviously. So we had three cameras and, and did it a number of times, certainly vetted all the guys that she came into contact with. I did an embarrassing walkthrough <laughs> of her routine and pointed to guys and said, OK, you're going to throw money and yeah, she's going to do this and that's going to get you to throw money. And so, yeah, we were able to give Ramona that that power entrance and and have, you know, Destiny in awe of her and us in awe of her and 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 see her at work. And so um, I remember she suggested a song that she had liked, and I suggested Fiona's, Fiona Apple's Criminal, and she was like, ooh, <laughs> I've been a bad, bad girl. I love it. So um, so we were we were in sync about, about that, but it, it really is because of Jennifer that we were able to step it out. And then it was that live event. It was Jennifer Lopez stripping in front of 300 extras and and it was intense and she was really nervous and she doesn't get nervous right. <laughs> so that was a shock but um I think once she did it once and got through it once she the nerves were gone but she also said like she felt the power of it mm -hmm. she felt different after it and she brought that power to the next take and um and then we you know moved the cameras around and I'm convinced that that scene's going to get studied in film school. Like I just, and, and particularly, I think in terms of how 
again, you bring you bring all of yourself, you know, to, to your work as a director, not just your gender. But when I watched that scene, I was I was just like, I've got if I ever get a chance, I want to ask you about is it possible to break down these choices? I, w- I was reminded of like Wonder Woman. Mm. And how Patty Jenkins filmed those women. It, there, there's something about the female gaze, G-A-Z-E, mm-hmm. that made you know those sh- those sequences different from. I mean, the quote unquote stripper scene is like a, is a trope, right? Mm-hmm. And I went back and I watched um, like Demi Moore and striptease and and her like centerpiece scene, and we've seen you know like Salma Hayek, like lots of iconic stars. Is there any way for you to be able to break down? the choices so that somebody who can't really put their finger on what the difference is between a woman having agency watching this scene versus when that's taken away. It started with hiring an incredible DP, Todd Van Hazel, who I saw what he did with Janelle Monae's videos and thought, who did this? Who's the woman who shot this? (laughs) Actually, it was what I thought. And her name was Todd. So it starts with hiring the best and certainly how we light the women. But, um, you know, we shot it on large format digital, which helped us change the resolutions. And so moments like when we wanted them to feel larger than life, we, we talked about 50 foot woman. That's what mm-hmm. we we said. Let's let's give her this 50 foot woman <laughs> lens. And so, yeah, we were able to shoot them in 8K in those moments. We talked about gangster lighting, you know, um, top lighting and, and, and back lighting and um, and I think all of that helped. That that wall that's behind her was really like, that was the feature for me of the club that I was so excited about. Just feels like Chicago or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. It's so show-stopping immediately and made the floor as shiny as possible and, and you know, wanted to add that shine to her, her costume and her skin. And, you know, it is like keys are jingling in front of you and you're just, the men are distracted by the shiny things. So, um <laughs> But yeah, 50-foot woman was what we talked about, and and that's what she is. So in terms of the placement of the, the cameras, like I said, it, it felt like it's what Ramona wants. And we thought about which characters are in control. There are obviously other scenes where characters are not in control. Destiny's in, not in as, you know, in as much control, and and that's why we covered it the way that we did. But in this scene, it's Ramona taking over and she may as well be like reaching out and grabbing the camera and going, no, look. (laughs) And so so we were able to take something incredibly sexy because we gave that character agency and and we we put her in control. And so that's as best as I can probably break it down without Mm -hmm. giving away too many of uh, of Todd's special sauce. (laughs) Um, When I watch this movie, it's so funny. It's like my brain had been trained to expect these women to be competing against each other and hate each other because Mm. that's what you see when you see a lot of movies about groups of women, you know? And you obviously didn't go to that sort of trope that we've seen before. And I'm, I'm curious about sort of the conscious choices you made about the way you portray these women at work in you know in the champagne room at at the club backstage before they go on and and how you decided to make them have those relationships that they do I mean that was something that I just found in my research and is that you know a lot of these girls work in pairs or in teams it's much more lucrative maybe they're not best friends outside of work in the same way but they are when they're there there is some competition there's racism there's a lot going on at the clubs that 
may not contribute to the camaraderie and the sisterhood of it. But I found that when you go into those locker rooms, there is a collective experience that all of these women have. And it can be a solo sport or a team sport. And it felt like the girls who were in the solo sport portion of their lives were sad and were having, you know, a harder time with it. I remember when Cardi saw the movie and she had posted her reaction to it. It was so emotional. It was so moving to me because for her, it was she remembered being destiny. She remembered being, you know, not talking to anybody and just trying to make money and just trying to get by. And and then you make those friends and, and someone opens up their coat to you and, and everything's different. And something like that scene, I mean, that came from, you know, destiny. Here she is having interactions with men and strangers, you know, physical interactions with them. And she certainly has a great relationship with her grandmother, but she doesn't even know what she does for a living. So it's not that same, you know, feeling as you have with a female friend. And then here's Ramona, who could seem like a terrifying person (laughs) to, to even walk up to and ask for a light. But she immediately opens up her coat because they have a shared experience. And she's that mama bear at the club. And she does Yes, it's lucrative probably for her to invite younger girls into her life. And, and I think she's equally surprised by how much she falls for destiny, too. But, but that immediate intimacy that I think women have with each other, those are the moments. I mean, you know, you, you, you meet a girl crying in a parking garage, you're going to help her out. <laughs> like, you know, there's, there's something about women that we do see other women in trouble and want to help because we understand it. When you were speaking earlier about the different reactions of men talking about sex or power, it was that scene in the movie where Destiny is taken advantage of by that guy in the champagne room is the wildest thing to watch with an audience because the women gasp and then a moment later you have four or five guys laughing. Hmm. And and it happened every time I saw it with an audience. And I heard, overheard two men whisper to each other, like, that's a good idea. Or we, we got to wow. try that that's because crazy. they're having a completely <sighs> different moment. But that moment is between Destiny and Elizabeth, Julia Stiles' character, because here are two women sitting across from each other. Life is but a coin flip. You know, they grew up in different houses with different circumstances, different families dealt a different hand of cards and, and, you know, in another life, they could have been in opposite chairs, you know, they're of a similar age. And so they have that collective experience, you know, they have that shared moment of, I understand what that's like. I know what that feeling is. And so as different as women are and as different as the women are in the movie, there is a shared female experience. And so for me, that's something that the, the dancers have. They have that in real life. And you know, they, they, I think we all kind of have that in a way. And yet competition is out there. There is that, there has been that feeling anyway, that we're all pitted against each other that, you know, if, um, if I get a job, that means you didn't. And somehow that, that is, is, it permeates. And so, um, I was really interested in showing the intimacy, the friendship, the camaraderie, the sisterhood that saves these people, you know, that really does, we it saves us it saves we we save each other and so yeah that that was always going to be the focus and and I'd seen a lot of movies where the competition is the main part of it there were frankly earlier drafts of the script where it felt 
much more like two women telling their sides of the story. Mm -hmm. And as I kept rewriting it, it was just less and less interesting to me. I was like, I don't care that they're, you know, that they may have seen something differently. This is really about, you know, Destiny's story of Ramona. And ultimately, the friendship is what's kind of most important mm -hmm. or, you know, what's what deserve to be highlighted the most. And and yeah, and that was what why Cardi's reaction meant so much to me, because she was like, oh, I might have to call up a couple girls. Or, <laughs> but then she said, maybe not yet, <laughs> or like, maybe for a rainy day. And, and um, you know, I, I've certainly I mean, female friendships are they're complicated. They're certainly complicated, I think, because they run deep mm -hmm. and sisters fight. And so. You know, there's some people I think about calling up sometimes or, you know, and and uh, and I, I think that feeling, that collective experience was, you know, we all have individual experiences and certainly have different communities, but there is a collective experience. Mm -hmm. What's cool, too, is that, you know, sort of even the conflict or the obstacle, right, that Destiny and Ramona encounter, it's not a, over like a man's favor, which I realized is another common trope when mm. they when they bring in like, you know, two sisters who are best friends, but eventually there's a rivalry because like one of the guys like, you know, like the main guy, the guy in charge likes one more like and like I was thinking and I was like, who's the most hype? There's there's just, you know, this movie is not driven by male favor or, mm. you know, um, or anything like that. These women are not fighting to win the attention of a man. So in that way, it really is just a very pure relationship between them. Yeah. We talked about money and friendship like those and money does get in the way of that friendship. You know, it may, they may as well have found a bag of money together and <laughs> seen what happened. But because they both are different with money and they're both in it for different reasons. So but yeah, the competition for a a man was never I mean, that was obviously never going to be a, a part of it. In a way, the antagonist is just culture. It's like sort of society. It's that, you know, were they were they going to win if they're out of breath at the starting line? Were they actually going to win the race? And of course, they cross the line. Of course, they do bad things and things that I don't agree with. But, you know, the fuller picture of it does explain a bit of what they're up against right. and what we're all up against. You know, I'm curious about the, the the notes. I mean, you've mentioned some of the things. I mean, obviously, this went from one studio to another, which we can say was Annapurna to STX. Mm -hmm. um, you know, were there any elements that you kind of had to fight for or even explain your choices, whether it was story driven or and again, thinking about this, this trope, this legacy of, of movies set in you know, with these types of settings that we've seen, you know, how much nudity to show, mm. how much to show of, you know, um, the champagne room activities, things like that. You know, when I, again, when I look back and think about Hustlers, it's not like, it doesn't strike me as like, oh, this movie is so fake. Why is it so PG? Like, I don't remember seeing that much nudity. And yet I don't think I remember seeing that much nudity. Mm. There, there. It's funny because there is, <laughs> but it's. I mean, it's mundane. It's, it's, it's. You, I, I had said the most nudity we should see is in the locker room because that is where the women are the least dressed, and they're you know usually comfortable with their bodies and walking around and smack each other in the butt, and like you know they're just like we all are in the bathrooms getting ready for the night out, you know, trying to psych each other up. So um, yeah, I mean there were a lot of questions and a lot of notes, obviously. I'm incredibly grateful to STX for seeing it. They were the only place in town that saw it for what it was. And they certainly still had notes. 
and I I remember I I was so scared of commitment at that point. <laughs> I'm not married, um, but I was so scared of commitment at that point that I was like, I'm going to do two drafts of this without anybody paying me because I mean I don't think I knew it was two at the time. I thought I was just doing one, but I was like, I'm going to rewrite this without anyone paying me in good faith, trying to cover the notes or what it is that they want me to focus on. But I don't think they had, they they didn't have confused notes. It felt just more like, you know, regular old studio notes for something. And I was like, well, this isn't a black and white story and it's not wrapped up in a bow. And uh, the friendship falling apart is, is very much a part of it, even though there's hope at the end and, and hope for them. But, um, they didn't give those kinds of notes, which I was incredibly grateful for. They really got it once I went in and gave my pitch and spoke to Adam Fogelson over there. He, he was incredibly supportive. But I still felt the need to smash the script on the ground and kind of start over. And that's where a lot of that competitiveness came out because I, I, I opened up the document, you know, and I, I wrote Destiny and Ramona on the title page instead of Hustlers. And I started with that. And I said, if this is Destiny and Ramona... If this is, you know, Romeo and Juliet, Bonnie and Clyde, Thelma and Louise, like, what is it? And so I rewrote it there at, uh, with, with that in mind. And the friendship evolved so much. So many scenes came out of it. The pole training scene came out of that and uh, that exercise. And it was ultimately not the right version of the movie. It lost the plot and and we lost, you know, some of the characters in it and and. So I rewrote it again, kind of from <laughs> scratch, page one rewrite for the third time. And um, and it, it became the, the movie and kind of a blend of, of both of those stories, still still, you know, keeping the crime in mind and, and, and what the plot was and how it unfolded. But to really root it all in, in Destiny and Ramona and their friendship. Earlier notes were certainly... I mean, you you speak about men not understanding the difference between sex and power. To be honest, men and women found all of this very confusing. And like I said, I think they were judging the characters for where they started from and not where they ended up. I'm not sure that that's why Annapurna let go of the movie, to be honest. I don't know that it was like a crossroads or anything. I know they had a lot going on. So who knows, to be honest, what, what took place. But I did so many little drafts of it uh, throughout that. And and it never really took the right shape. It didn't take this shape until, until STX was involved. And, but yeah, I, I, I really think uh, the notes were like, can this be a rape revenge story? Wow. And I thought, I don't, I don't know how that happens. I think these women face the same microaggressions to aggressions that we all face. And certainly that happens. And these women are assaulted. And to me, that scene that's in the movie is is assault. But, you know, it wasn't a clean black and white story. It didn't, it didn't, you know, it wasn't that exact thing where like, oh, they deserve it. And certainly Ramona has her own reasons for why she believes that they deserve it. And when she explains it, like when I saw it with an audience and they cheered, (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't expecting that, to be honest. Um, And every time I saw it, they cheered at that, you know, that there was an applause break just for her speaking on, on behalf of the country yeah. <laughs> that and and what took place at the financial crisis and and you know I worked in a boiler room when I was like 18 19 answering 
phones and um, just secretarial work. But it was uh, off off Wall Street, <laughs> just a, a big room full of phones uh, in northern New Jersey where guys were just selling bad stocks to old people. And I overheard all of it and, and saw them sexually harass the re- receptionist. And uh, my mom worked there for a little while. A guy said he was going to hit her in the head with a baseball bat. And the bosses said to her, bottom line, can you keep working with him? Because he makes us a lot of money and you, you know, just type. But there was also a guy there who was on his headset for six months talking to nobody because he was losing his mind because hmm. um, it was crazy. Yeah. And so, you know, I felt like I grew up with these guys. I grew up with these girls. Writing is always an exercise in empathy for me. And I mean, life is an exercise in empathy. So I personally tend to empathize with everybody who's navigating this really broken value system, the men included. They've been told that their value is the size of their wallet. And so, you know, that was my approach to it, even though the men can be seen as props in this movie often. Like, I feel for them. I feel for everybody. And, I, you know, is it any wonder that something like the financial crisis happens and is it any wonder that we're still here in 2019 asking a lot of questions when to me that's the root of the problem and I don't fault any job or any gender I certainly don't judge the women for what they do for a living and I don't judge the men who walk into these clubs either looking for companionship or, or whatever it is so um, but I think it's that power it's exactly that that word power that that it, it has been respected it's been encouraged and greed is rewarded and you know i think when we're valued for such different things you know we we should be treated equally still but that value system it it really starts there and then i can't help but think the trickle down of that seeps into every other corner of culture all of our every headline everything that we're up against right now gun control i mean like Mm -hmm. uh, you know the there's so little there's so few phrases that i really like latch on to to be honest you know there's a lot of modern phrases i worry phrases catchphrases are going to kill us to be (laughs) honest um but toxic masculinity is of interest to me and it's it's incredibly american it's incredibly american so as much as obviously there are so many parts of the world that are worse uh in terms of that uh, i can't help but find that the the masculinity problem feels incredibly american and um and you know i eat red meat and all that (laughs) so that's not to say you know that there aren't things that we can hang on to as as americans although you know we should eat less red meat um (laughs) don't buy fur um but you know that that that's of interest to me i i was i was i was dying to have more nuanced conversations before we all had to like link arms and just say we're human beings and treat us like human beings i was so excited to have those nuanced conversations and so that was why i was so grateful that we were able to make this movie because to me it was about so much more than a stripper movie, more than a crime drama, more than even the friendship story. There was something, you know, larger at work. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned Cardi B's reaction to the film, but I'm curious, what have you heard from other dancers who've seen the movie? What's been sort of the most surprising reaction? It's been mixed. And that's, you know, it's hard. I, I mean, it's really hard to, you know, represent a community and want to represent a community but the story was always a crime drama at heart. And so it was always really hard for me to want to proudly represent the community and, 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 and show how much of this was a job, mm-hmm. a job like anything else. And 
yet, you know, the real story of what these women did and, and, and what happened, that was hard. So um, I've heard both, to be honest. I've heard a lot of dancers saying to me that you got it right and and certainly have seen online other, other dancers saying that you got it wrong. I'm not sure I, you know, would have ever satisfied everybody, obviously. And part of that is that the story is being told by destiny and this is destiny's story of of that world and so pre-2008 for her it was the high life you know it was money raining from the sky and and without knowing that the rug was going to be ripped out and it is that this this fantasy that she's sort of selling that that is up against the reality of her sitting there on the couch with this journalist telling this sobering story Mm -hmm. and so you know, I'm I'm incredibly proud of whatever we got right and, and whatever I got wrong has, has been, you know, a real learning lesson and just been trying to communicate as much as possible with the community. I'm incredibly grateful for the feedback we've gotten, but, you know, you can't get it all right, of yeah. course. <laughs> well, we always conclude our podcasts with two questions uh, we ask our guests based on this episode's theme. So the first question is Hollywood Remixed. What's one example of a film or TV show that has portrayed exotic dancers or sex workers in a way that you would revise or recast? I mean, I love Pretty Woman. Mm -hmm. I love Pretty Woman. (laughs) So I don't know if there's a redo to do, but it is... I mean, maybe a spinoff with Laura San Giacomo's character (laughs) would be uh, really (laughs) incredible to watch. You know, I I thought it got that relationship really right. That was mm-hmm. like a very beautiful relationship between those two women. So I'm, I, I kind of wouldn't mind watching the two of them, actually. You know, leave Richard Gere out of it for a second. I love <laughs> it's that. It's a good idea. It's a great one. <laughs> and our last one here is what we call the hidden gem. It's a film or show or piece of art or book or some work that centers on this theme, you know, on dancers or sex workers that you would suggest our listeners check out that they may not be aware of. Oh, uh, there was this documentary called Whore's Glory. It's incredibly different Mm -hmm. from Hustlers. It's dark, but it highlights different countries and and, and shows these women uh, doing their job in, in different countries. And it's incredibly fascinating to see how these different cultures embrace it or don't embrace it and what the power dynamics are between the women and the men um, or the women and the women often. Um, It's an incredible watch. It's, uh, again, wildly different. And part of it was, even in watching some of those things, was not wanting to turn hustlers into, like, poverty porn, but to still show the struggle of it and the struggles of it. But watching Whore's Glory was um, enlightening to see different corners of the world, these women in these jobs in, in various corners of the world and, and how different culturally, you know, it is. Loreen, thank you so much for coming in. Hustlers was, um, I mean, seriously, it's iconic. Thank so um, we really appreciate it and we wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I want to say thanks again to Lorene Scafaria for joining us to talk about Hustlers. The movie is now available on DVD and is a big part of award season, so I'm sure we'll be hearing much more from her. Please stay tuned next week when we talk to the L Word Generation Q showrunner Marja Lewis-Ryan about Hollywood's portrayal of lesbian and queer characters. And make sure to subscribe to Hollywood Remixed on your favorite podcasting platform. Catch you on the flippity flop! <laughs> Thank you.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.